This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Aaron O'Donnell, early career academic fellow at Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne. Aaron is a water law and policy specialist focusing on water markets and governance. She has worked in water resource management since 2002 in both the private and public sectors. Erin is internationally recognized for her research into the groundbreaking new field of legal rights for rivers and the challenges and opportunities that these new rights create for protecting the multiple social, cultural, and natural values of rivers. Erin's latest book, which was the subject of our discussion, is Legal Rights for Rivers, Competition, Collaboration, and Water Governance, and is available now from Rutledge. In this book, Erin considers two case studies of the development of legal rights for rivers one in Eastern Australia and the other in the Western United States. In each case, the rights of rivers are promoted through what Aaron calls environmental water managers who purchase water rights through markets. And Aaron argues that what may seem like a movement towards a more intrinsic value of nature often leads to a backlash against the newfound power of nature as a legal entity and can also relegate nature into being just another water user that is competing with everyone else in water markets. I think that Aaron ultimately argues for what we would call a paradigm shift in which we come to see nature as a living entity with value in its own right, at which point we wouldn't need to worry as much about making it legible to the law as a legal person. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Aaron O'Donnell. I found about your work through another book I was reading on rights and they cited you this book, Legal Rights for Rivers, Competition, Collaboration, and Water Governance. And this book really touches on, I think, some very fundamental questions that we need to think about and think seriously about when we engage with the idea of rights for nature. And there's several different aspects that takes, which has been really interesting to learn about. There's, And you mentioned a lot of these You know, there's indigenous environmental studies that focuses on the intrinsic value that lots of communities have for the environment, kind of as something that's kind of culturally evolved from the bottom up. And then there's the whole legal movement, and everyone seems to cite Christopher Stone here. Um, And so that's a very, that's kind of its, its, its own path. And... It's interesting that towards the end of your book, you do talk about some of these very well-known kind of paradigmatic cases of rights for nature, the Wanganui River um, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And then there was the movement in in India that my understanding kind of piggybacked on the Wanganui Act and, and that movement there. And your book talks about some of that stuff, but it's 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 two case studies are in southeastern, I think, Australia and in the Western U.S. And the Western U.S. is a case I know reasonably well. Uh, I'm from the northeastern United States, but for my dissertation, I studied a set of community-based irrigation systems in rural New Mexico, actually. for I was there for about eight months. I was kind of doing anthropology light. Yep. And came, and that's when I learned about prior appropriation and all these ideas that you talk about. And so it was really interesting for me to both read about a case that was, I mean, in some ways foreign, the Australian context is quite different, but it's also, um, in some ways, there's some cultural overlap, of course, between Australia. Yeah. It's the word I use, and I got this from work by Joe Henrik is 
these weird cultures, right? Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And there's, there, it's its own particular thing. Yeah, I would add colonial and the Western mm. US, Southeastern Australia also have a strong history of um, idea exchange when it comes to water resource management. So there's been, you know, over the last hundred and, yeah, probably hundred years, 110 years, there's been a lot of back and forth between those two jurisdictions as we learn from each other. Mm. Okay. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And adding colonial, I think is uh, appropriate. When I've read some of that work on on the weird cultures, it it's one of the concerns that I've had, and I've heard some critiques is that it kind of skirts the issue of inhumane asymmetries of power and treatment. Yep. And from a legal perspective, there's often an illegitimacy that remains at the heart of the settler state. So that mm. particularly influences the way that water law has evolved. Oh, well, that, that feels like its own conversation that hopefully yeah, we can... We can, we can go into that later. Like, but that's, yeah, that's where my work has taken me now. Okay. Well, so then we'll definitely get to it at, um, before the end of the interview, because that's one of the last questions I always ask is what's next. So, but I'd love to start with this framework that you introduce. It did, it did a lot of sense making for me. And I noticed, Aaron, that um, the word legibility does a lot of work for you yeah. in this book. And so I think it'd be helpful to start with that word and hear from you what work it is doing for you. I should mention that in this podcast, I think I mentioned James Scott's work about every episode. And that's his book, Seeing Like a State, is where I first encountered the idea of legibility. And it's had a huge influence on me in thinking about what is seen and what is not seen and why. And legibility is one of these words that you have to talk about legibility of something to someone. And you talk, you talk about the legibility of the environment to the law. And so can we start with, with this question? Um, what is the significance of the word legibility to you in this work? And can you explicitly unpack that statement? What does it mean for um, the environment to become more legible to the law? So to begin with the idea of legibility, for me, what I like about it is that it brings in two concepts. One is visibility. So the idea of being seen um, and, and being seen by law. I'm going to come back to why that matters. But the other aspect of it for me is comprehensibility. So not just visibility, but actually being understood or at least being seen in a way that the viewer can understand. So making the environment legible to law is a way of saying you're, you're really bringing it into the legal sphere in a way that the law can then make sense of it and engage with it on a deeper level as law rather than simply kind of skirting the edges of the environment. And so when we think about the way that the environment um, has been historically defined in law, it begins with the sort of the absence of definition in a lot of ways. It doesn't form part of a lot of the early common law. Um, the only places that the law really sees it is through the actions of others. And when that started to change, in the sort of 60s and 70s around the world when we had this enormous upwelling of environmental law statute, it began to transition into, again, this kind of inchoate legal concept, which was 
you know, the environment which is out there, it's often very, um, very vaguely defined. And again, it tends to be seen through the actions of others. So although recognising it as a concept in law was the beginning of that legibility, I would argue that for certainly for Western legal systems, for common law jurisdictions like Australia, like the US, the pinnacle of comprehensibility and visibility to the law is the legal person. So it was only once the environment began to attract the attributes of a legal person that it truly became legible to law. Right. And this idea that you mentioned a few times of the environment only being seen through the impacts on people, this very anthropocentric perspective. So my understanding there, and I've seen this in Christopher Stone's writing too, is it's it's a very, I don't want to say backwards, but indirect or instrumental way of valuing the environment. It only You only care about the environment insofar as it impacts the interests of a person whose own interests are valued by the law. Yeah. So it's 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 this very meandering way to to actually tar- start to care about the environment. Yeah, and you miss a whole lot. So that was Christopher Stone's argument: is that he said if the only environmental impacts that matter are those that can be measured against a human impact, then you miss the vast majority of impacts to the ecosystem. So if a species goes extinct but humans don't really notice, or it doesn't have a material impact on a specific individual that actually brings a case, then the law can't see it, the law can't really take it into account. Now, there's a number of ways that people have found workarounds to this idea since he's been writing, um, you know, since 1972, including increasing the, the standing arrangements that enable peak environmental bodies, for instance, to start bringing the interests of the environment into the court. But it's still... Yeah, it's still a bit of a workaround. Um, it's still trying to come up with ways to enable someone to speak for the environment rather than the law actually acknowledging that the environment is itself a living entity or a legal entity with rights and interests of its own. Okay. So, Erin, can you walk me through this framework that I mentioned that talks about, and you kind of describe this as a process of first conceptualizing the environment as what you refer to as a social ecological concept. And I'll admit that that's, that part of the framework is fuzzier for me than the other parts. Yeah. And then you have going from that to the environment as object, and that's a space of some but incomplete legibility, in my, and that's kind of how I understand it. And then there's kind of fuller leg, of legibility, which is the environment as subject, kind of what you're already talking about, the environment as seen as kind of a legal person, um, not needing protection as an object through the actions of other people, but having kind of its own um, agency and rights. Can you walk me through um, the process that the framework describes? Yeah, so I came to this framework through the question of what does it mean for the environment to be recognised in law as a legal person? Why does it matter? Why does it feel like it changes things? And so for me it helped to see that that shift in the context of the history of the way that the law has both recognised, engaged with and constructed the environment within a legal context. So beginning with the idea of that socio-ecological idea, concept of the environment, for the law, understanding the environment as 
as an entity, even if it's a, a really vague um, conceptual entity, that was a major shift. So that was the big shift of the environmental law movement in the 60s and 70s, was to say the law actually does need to look at the world around us, see it in its holistic way, and understand that the world around us is something that we need to start protecting and or at least being cognizant of. So that was the that was the big breakthrough of those early environmental laws, was saying it's not just about um, torts or nuisance or individualised legal actions that certainly uh, pick up some of the impacts to the environment. Um, you can certainly pollute um, with noise or with noxious chemicals, and that can end up with a, a legal action in terms of nuisance. But that's a very private right style action. So this said, the environment is a collective good. Um, it's a collective way of looking at the world. We are starting to see impacts to it at that scale, at that sort of holistic level. Um, it drew very much on the ideas from uh, Rachel Carson's work, obviously, seeing the world around us in a collective way and recognising that the scale of human impact was affecting the environment as a whole. And so those early laws were an attempt by the law to say, well, we can actually begin to conceptualise within law what the environment means. Now, it is vague because I think the, the early legal framers really struggled to actually get a handle on what they meant. So in, in some cases, they were extremely specific um, and actually listed out all of the elements of the environment. In other cases, it was left really broad um, and quite flexible. So in some ways, yeah, like both of those things have, have pluses and minuses. If you get very, very specific, then it can actually be hard to see the forest for the trees, um, you know, often literally, because if you enumerate all of the specific elements of the environment, you can very quickly, I think, end up in a death by a thousand cuts. You know, we might be impacting this little bit, but how do we put that into the context of the whole? On the other hand, if you've got an environmental definition which is very vague, it can also be really difficult to understand what kinds of impacts actually matter. The flip side of that, of course, is that those, those vague definitions hook into what people understand the environment to be, and that's social construction of the environment. And so that's why I say it's, it's a socio-ecological concept because it's very much what human beings choose to understand the environment as and then what human beings choose to articulate the environment as in law. And so it's, it's making that connection back into human narratives and, and the power of a cultural narrative to underpin and shape what the law ends up seeing. And so once you've established that as a groundwork, then the law was able to start to progress beyond that. I mean, it sounds like one piece of this is a growing recognition of interdependence and the ways in which people can affect each other through their treatment of the environment. I think, yeah, it is in the sense that it's it definitely came through, like a lot of the early environmental movements were driven by communities who were saying actually the impacts of um, corporate pollution, for instance, are so sub significant and substantive that we actually need a law that sees that in a more holistic way rather than having each of us try and band together to, to run a class action in nuisance or to try and protect our individual rights. So there's definitely a collective element in there. I think the, yeah, the interdependence one, I think, is one 
that's almost, it runs alongside another idea which has shaped environmental law, and that's the concept of wilderness. And so the reason why I'm, yeah, wanting to draw that out is because I think the idea of wilderness itself is also one which rejects people. So mm. it's a really colonial construct of what the environment is, but the environmental advocacy movement has been driven both by communities saying, you know, we deserve the right to clean air and healthy water and a safe place to live, but also um, environmentalists saying we need to protect wilderness. And we do, but um, defining wilderness by the absence of people is where I, I get a little bit nervous. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, Erin. It's been something that I've been struggling with as I've been di digesting this literature on rights to nature, because it seems like, and while we're talking about it, why don't we go down this path a little bit? It, it seems like you could go one of two pretty different directions with that idea. You could say, like in the case of the Wanganui River, right? The, the recognition of the rights of this river are in fact a reflection of kind of a, a, a symbiotic or holistic relationship between humans and nature. Not, as, not assuming that it's a win-lose relationship, that humans are necessarily hurting nature. And my understanding of that case is that, that, that idea, those ideas are built into the motivation for the granting of rights to that river. That it's not saying the river is apart from people and we need to protect it as a pristine wilderness without people. It's kind of doing the opposite. And we, I agree my understanding is that in the history of a lot of environmentalism has moved in the opposite direction saying... Uh, it's, it's, it's as you said, we're assuming that humans are detrimental to nature and so we need to protect nature from humans. And you could see a rights to nature movement heading down that very different path. And that's something that I haven't reconciled in my own head, what tilts this discourse in one direction versus the other. So, yeah, there's, there's a few different threads to pull on there. Um, a couple of examples to really explore that connection between the rights of nature and the rights of people. The Colombian case, the Rio Atrato River, the reasoning behind that case, the, the reason why that river is now recognised as having rights is because the Constitutional Court decided that the only way to protect the constitutional rights of the communities that lived along and, and depended on that river, and these were communities that they're minority groups, so some of them are former uh, descendants of former slaves and others are indigenous communities, both of which have special protections under Colombian law. The court decided that the best way to protect their rights was to recognise the rights of the river and to see them in that biocultural framework. So there is a very strong relationship between um, the rights of nature and the rights of human beings. And it's it's often, not solely obviously, but it's most often um, Indigenous communities that are expressing that relationship most strongly. So in Australia, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people say country needs people. And country is an Aboriginal English term to describe all the world around us. And uh, an Aboriginal philosopher, Mary Graham, uh, she's a Combenberry woman, she lives in Queensland in Australia, she describes the definition of humanity for Indigenous peoples as defined by firstly, their relationship to country and secondly, their relationship to human beings. And she says the first of those is the most important. It's your relationship to the world around you, which is actually the essence of your humanity. 
And that's that's very, very different to the way that a lot of Western societies construct our understanding of, of humanity. Um, we're often a lot more individualist. We tend to focus on, on rights of the individual. We have legal processes that are defined by our ability to um, navigate those those times when rights come into conflict. Whereas what I'm seeing in a lot of Indigenous cultures, again, not, not in a, a kind of pan-Indigenous way because they all express it differently, but that interdependence um, between people and place, that mutual obligation, that co-creation of country, that people um, people do with country is something that, that comes through very strongly. The, the risk with the rights of nature movement. And it is a, a space in which many Indigenous peoples and people have expressed deep concern and mistrust because they see, particularly in colonial context, the recognition of nature's legal rights as yet another opportunity to exclude their rights and their connection to country. So the environmental, yeah, the environmental movement um, has a lot of proud history. But unfortunately, one of the common threads is that it tends to be tends to be white people. It tends to be wealthy white people, and I don't think the environmental movement has fully reckoned with the racist elements that have underpinned some of its actions at some time. And I think the the concept of wilderness is one that continues to to occupy that space of systemic racism. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that one of the challenges here for the law is that the Western perspective that you just described, there is this challenge of how do you incorporate these other perspectives? How do you make them visible to the law? How do you make them legible to the law when there's a lot of very acute differences in worldview to be navigated and this is something that folks in my own field talk a lot about in terms of accommodating different types of knowledge, right? So there's scientific knowledge, there's local, traditional, ecological knowledge, and there's a discourse that says, well, we need to somehow combine these because each has their own values. But the concern that comes up there is essentially one of of intellectual colonialism, how do you make sure that each of these are engaging with each other on equal footing and that one isn't essentially just taking from the other one, you know, and, and I had a colleague once who, who, who quoted someone as saying, well, how do we kind of, how do we mine local knowledge as a resource? And that was pretty obnoxious to my colleague as kind of the imposition of this Western perspective on the local institutions and knowledge, seeing them as it does as another type of resource as we tend to from a Western point of view. And so that seems to be, and I, I feel like it, it's attention throughout your book when you're talking about these, and this is a, another concept that we need to get to, these environmental water managers, as they try to engage with um, the communities they're in, they're needing to navigate a similar tension of how do we make sure that we are not alienating other people based on their interests and their cultural views as we try to still move the needle on protecting the environment. Yeah, it's it's a big challenge. And I think one of the things that drew me to the two case studies, the, the Western US and Southeastern Australia, was that 
they have both navigated it in very, very different ways. Um, I think they've both been able to learn from each other's experiences, but they have started uh, from quite different beginning points. So in Australia, the, the emergence of environmental water holders, environmental water managers, was definitely later than it was in the US. They were tended to be government agencies. There's a few non-government ones, but they're predominantly government agencies. And their remit uh, was defined by their outcome. So when we think about legitimacy, what defines legitimacy, it's often a combination of input processes. So how do you get there? How does the process work? And then the outcome. So that's the output legitimacy. What did you actually achieve? And so the Australian environmental water recovery process focused very much on the outcome. How much water have we got back for the environment? And so they tried to do that quite quickly. Um, they used market-based mechanisms. So government put a lot of money on the table to go out and buy water on the market. And the emphasis was, let's get more water back for the environment. Let's get it back into rivers and wetlands as quickly as possible. So that's a really valid measure of success. But what they, I think, neglected in that process and what's since come back to bite them is that they didn't engage with communities enough and they didn't really understand the value of community-led processes until quite late in the game. Um, and one of the one of the really telling moments in my research for the book was when I went over to the US and did some interviews and I thought, well, how can I how can I thank people for spending this time with me and telling me about their work? And so I brought them um, some Australian chocolates in the shape of a Murray cod, which is an iconic fish species in, um, in the Murray-Darling Basin. And this was part of a fundraising effort for them. And it's, it's really good chocolate. So I felt pretty good about that. And then the other one was this beautiful glossy booklet produced by the Victorian Environmental Water Holder showing all of the activities that they'd been able to do. And I'm like, well, maybe people might find this interesting. And everybody was like, whoa, this is, you know, it's really beautiful. It's lovely. And then immediately the comment where are the people? We'd never get away with producing something like this in the United States because there's no people in any of the photos in this book. There's lots of animals, there's lots of beautiful wetlands and rivers, but there are no people. And so that, I think, really underscores where the Western US process for environmental water has come from, which is very much about the relationships. So the people I interviewed would define success based on the relationships that they'd created and maintained first, and then environmental water recovery second. So it meant that every single process of um, acquiring water from a rancher or from an irrigator, returning it to a stream, would produce a local champion because that person would be so convinced by the process of, of how that had worked that they became a voice for environmental water recovery. The flip side of that is that it's incredibly slow. It's incredibly difficult to scale up. Um, and so Dustin Garrick's work really speaks to the challenges of that side of the equation. And I think that, yeah, the relationship is important, but then you just keep having to do the same kinds of processes slowly, slowly, slowly over and over and over again. And I think that's that's really been the challenge for the Western US is how do they take the lessons that they've learned and the successes that they've had and ramp it up. And that's that's been the bit that they've struggled to do, like move it to the next step in terms of generating bigger, enduring water recoveries and water returns. So definitely flip sides, right? If you, if you take too long, then your environmental impacts 
um, become worse. It's taking you forever to fix them and it's too expensive. But if you go too hard and too fast and leave the community behind, then you can very quickly undermine any of the success that you are having. And this is what happened in Australia. So the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder, the national body, the one that had actually put in a lot of that, that money to recover water, very early on began to refer to itself as just another irrigator um, and as the largest irrigator in the basin. And so it was deliberately adopting the language of irrigation to say, we're just like you, like nothing to see here, it's fine. Like we're just operating the market like you, we're pulling water out of storage and delivering it just like you. Ours goes to wetlands, yours goes to rice paddies or orchards. Um, but we're basically the same. We pay the same fees. We, you know, operate in the same system, which is a way to get a small target outcome, but it does absolutely nothing to build support. So when, when water prices began to increase in Australia, the environmental water recovery was the easy thing to target. And so government then put a, a halt to the use of the water market to, as, as a source for environmental water recovery and started investing in other things like water efficiency savings, which are a whole other question about whether that's, that's good or not. But one of the challenges with that is that it's usually at least twice as expensive, sometimes three or four or ten times the price of going to the market. So you're paying an extraordinary premium for a bit of political cover. And... It was that, yeah, that framing and that inability to build those relationships from the get-go and to understand how important they were going to be for the ongoing legitimacy of environmental water recovery. Right. And so now we're, we're in the weeds here. And so there's a lot of concepts that try to hold together. And one of the ones that, that, that we're really engaging a, a lot with here, right, Aaron, is, is markets themselves. And as you say in the book, this, it's, there's really different, it, the idea of markets and this idea of increasing legibility are kind of coming together pretty strongly in this book. And to me, that was one of the most interesting parts of it. I initially was interested in it um, because of the, the legibility angle and the rights of nature. And, and then I was kind of pleasantly surprised when I saw that a lot of this is happening through water markets and through these environmental water managers that are you know, they are very much, their agency is, is, a lot of it is expressed through the markets. Although, as you say, I feel like I'm associating this argument more with the Australian case that a lot of their agency and power also comes from their ability to engage in the policy process itself and with discourses, maybe outside of actual market transactions. Um, so can we talk about what I perceive to be a tension between this movement towards further legibility. And there's an assumption for me at this point in the conversation that more legibility is better. When I think about the initial critique of incomplete legibility, right? It was, it, it was viewing the environment very instrumentally. What's wrong with seeing the environment instrumentally? Well, it's kind of, as I think you said earlier in this conversation, you're not getting a whole picture. And so if you move towards a more intrinsic valuation of anything, including the environment, if I, you know, if I intrinsically value a friend of mine, it means I value kind of their, their whole self, right? Versus if it's extrinsic, then I'm valuing certain parts of that person. 
And so as we move towards a more complete valuation of nature, more of nature becomes legible to us. It would really help me in the beginning of this conversation when you said legibility is kind of visibility plus comprehensibility. That made sense to me. That it's 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 salient to you see it, but you're also it's a sense making yeah. process. That that helped me a lot. When I think about markets and what they do, and something that I've learned from talking with Dustin Garrick already is to not fall into the trap of kind of the the homogeny effect of of treating markets as if they're all the same. Right. Because again, that's again, that's coming from a certain perspective of thinking about markets as being largely impersonal, highly formalized, which, of course, they're not all the time. Right. There's very, you know, communities around the world and for a very long time having have used informal, often barter markets to do lots of things that we don't often think about from a more formal perspective. So but when I think about formalized markets of the kind we're dealing with here, you know, there's a tension here in that what makes for a high functioning, low transaction cost market, it's something that is not necessarily valuing legibility. And it's something it's, it's, if you want to trade something, the, the, you want to economize on how much the good that's being traded is described. I hope this is still making sense. Um, and so markets seem to be, in my mind, heading towards a more extrinsic valuation of what's being traded. And I, I feel like I, I, I saw that tension where, in some of these cases, the argument was, well, we're going to buy these rights for in-stream use because ultimately that will help the communities in Colorado, for example. So it feels like they're is a kind of incomplete legibility here. And I think you actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not remembering whether you say this or whether I'm in, in, in kind of projecting this because this is my own understanding. But it, it seems like they're, they're, we're, not, we're not achieving full legibility of the environment here. And part of that is because of the market arrangements that are being used to satisfy environmental goals am i under something here or am i yeah, off I think, you are. I think it comes back to the to the question of who is it legible to and how is the viewer i think setting the terms of engagement so when we this question of how how does the environment become legible to law or to the market or, or to us it needs to be a two-way conversation right so if if the law is solely responsible for driving that, um, that, that increasing legibility issue. So my framework shows that at the, the sort of the pointy end where you've got a legal person, that's the pinnacle of legibility to the law. But, right, that's the environment as subject. Yeah, right? that's the environment as subject. And so okay. but what that, what that does is let its law set the terms of engagement. So there's a reason why I narrow it down as well. When you get to a legal person, the law sees that as, as a very individualised construct. So in many ways, it's actually not appropriate as a model for understanding what the environment is. So the, it's, a, it's a one-way process at this point 
because the law has dictated the terms in which the environment can become legible to it. It says, well, this is how I work. So if you want me to understand you, you need to slot in to the, to the frameworks that make sense to me. If you become a legal mm-hmm. person, yep, then I'll see you in that way, but I will only see you in that way. So you actually lose some of the broader context of what the environment actually is. So if we think about the socioecological concept that we began with and how that gets funneled into a legal person, you're losing a lot. And I think it's the same when you think about a market. And this is the, yeah, this is the challenge, I think, when you rely on a market to drive that or when you rely or whether you just end up in a place where the market has driven that um, construction of the environment as a legal person is that you've taken literally everything around you. The environment is everything that surrounds us and collapsed it into an individualised market participant. And so it's, it's, incre- it's much more legible to the law um, and to the market in that context. But in doing so, this is, the, this is a kind of appropriation. It's, it's that one way um, I'm going to take this idea and make it understandable to me. I think... The way to get back to that full legibility that you're talking about is to say, how do we make this a two-way conversation? What is the environment actually telling us? And Western law is really bad at doing that. Um, Our history and the legal history of of, of legal frameworks in, in Western societies has been predominantly one in which we have imposed legal frameworks on the world around us. We've tried to use the law to, I guess, dictate to the world around us about how we want to engage with it and with each other. When you look at the different models of law that come through Indigenous communities, they are much more much more responsive to the world around them and much more co-created. So the agency of ecosystems, of, uh, of rivers, of mountains, of other creatures is inherently respected within the different legal frameworks that they've created and obviously in different ways. Um, but it's it's a much more yeah it's a much more embedded process of being rather than a process that's designed to enable domination and exploitation. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. I, I actually kind of wonder whether, in my own mind, I'm conflating this idea of full legibility with something can be fully legible to the law. But if that means that the law is imposing its own perspective on this other thing, it, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that the law has a kind of comprehensive or holistic view of the environment in that case. Would you agree with that? Is, is that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's if you compare, um, say, environmental water managers to the statute that created the, the Te Awatupua and the Wanganui River, that's one of the key differences, right, is that the, in, in the case of Aotearoa New Zealand, the law and worldviews of Māori have influenced the way that the settler state law has been constructed. So it's, it's one of the better examples, I think, where you're seeing a coming together of different legal systems to produce something that is new. Um, it's not... You know, it's not perfect. The power dynamics, obviously, even with a treaty in place, are still very skewed towards the settler state. But you can see, so if you look at, um, I think it's section 12, 13 and 14 in the Te Awatupua legislation, 
And it begins in section 12 by saying that the river is a living and indivisible whole from the mountains to the sea, all its physical and metaphysical elements. And that's a really, it's a beautiful and holistic way of describing the river. And it's the emphasis on, on living and indivisibility is really important. And then section 13 steps through the specific principles that underpin the legislation. Um, and they are presented in Tereo as well as in English. And again, you've got this beautiful coming together of ideas and cosmologies and the power of um, Maori law in shaping the way that the river moves forward. And then in section 14, you've got a very legalistic description of the river as a legal person and how that operates in the context of specific pieces of other settler state legislation. So you begin really with, with Maori concepts, you move through a blending and then you come out the other side with the, the state concept almost on its own as a legal person. So, the, yeah, the multiple models that are contained within that one piece of legislation make it really interesting. Okay. So but I'd like to stick with trying to understand these um, water markets a bit for myself and for the listeners. You refer to them in the book as a shared resource market, and you distinguish that from other types of markets. I think it'd be helpful to hear almost like a nuts and bolts description of how these transactions occur. And you mentioned that it's been quite slow in the Western US and an additional nuance there that I found very interesting and didn't know is how that engages with the prior appropriation system in the US, Western US for water, which is something I, I did know about. And for listeners, right, the prior appropriation system is largely used in the Western U.S. versus our riparian rights system for water use and management in the Eastern U.S., which is much wetter versus the drier Western U.S. And this relates to another topic you mentioned in the book, this difference between a kind of balancing approach to rights, right? If, if my rights impinge on yours, how do we figure that out, right? Is it, if it's a balancing approach, then it's, well, how much, how much am I impinging on you versus how much benefit maybe I'm getting out of it versus, right, there's this kind of cost, social cost benefit perspective that seems to be there versus a more hierarchical or priority-based approach, which is very much what prior appropriation does, right? It says there are junior water rights holders and there are senior water rights holders and the senior water rights holders are supposed to get everything that they're supposed to get before the junior water rights holders get anything. And... I mean, this, and this largely happens when there's a drought. If there's enough, then everyone can get what they want. But if there's not enough, then there's a very strict priority. And one of the most interesting case-specific pieces of information I learned from the book, Aaron, was that the implementation of this shared resource water market in the Western U.S. has had... It, it engages with junior water rights holders differently than it engages with senior water rights holders. So could we start there and could you talk a bit about first what a shared resource market is? And that's actually, I don't mean to be piling on a lot of stuff, but this relates to something I mentioned earlier that we don't want to overly homogenize what we mean by the word market, right? That seems to be an important point here. And that's why I liked that part of your book where you say, look, it's, there are actually, there's a typology of like, there, there are different types of markets. And so that language helped me. So could you talk to about what we mean by a shared resource market 
and how these transactions happen on the ground. And then we can go from there to this interesting case-specific example of junior versus senior water rights holders. Yeah, absolutely. And how that plays out. Um, so when I was, again, when I was coming into this, a lot of the literature around environmental markets specifically is focused on either environmental bads or environmental goods. And so environmental bads are when you have a cap and trade system, say, for pollution. So the environment has no interest in acquiring pollution or in, in producing pollution. It has an interest in reducing everybody else's production of that pollution. So when an environment, say, purchases, you, know, you could have, and I think this is starting to happen with NGOs in different places, buying emissions permits, what they're doing in that circumstance is really just trying to lower the cap. They have no interest in the goods themselves. So that's, that's the environmental bad side of things. And then you've got the environmental goods markets, which are often termed public goods markets. And in that instance, the environment has a lot of interest in it. So it might be um, buying uh, wetland revegetation or um, fencing of, of riparian zones along streams. So you're creating environmental goods, you're putting a price on that, you're enabling people to be paid for their work. So the environment is usually the buyer of those goods, has a lot of interest in it. But oftentimes, individuals or farmers have no interest in that specific good. They might be able to see, yep, look, overall, this is going to make my, my property uh, more sustainable in the long time, long run, perhaps, but I'm only interested in doing it if I'm getting paid. So what I'm interested in is the payment. The environment is interested in the good. And so when I was looking at those two kind of ends of the spectrum, it seems to me that water sits between them because the environment is very interested in water rats, but so, of course, are farmers and irrigators. So, and and towns and mining communities and all sorts of, you know, we're all interested in it. And so for me, it was a really interesting case to say, well, I don't know that there are many other markets in which the environment is as interested in the primary good that's being traded on that market as the human consumers of that good are. So it sets up quite a different style of market and the environment becomes a competitor with humans in, in a way that it's it's not really under the other circumstances. And it's got such a strong interest in acquiring that specific good for its own sake, not just to prevent humans from, you know, from producing it. So that set up the conditions for the environment to be a participant in the market and one among many participants in ways that, you know, the either end of that spectrum, it, it's not really operating in quite that same way. So that, I think, sets up some really interesting dynamics about how the environment is actually participating and on what grounds. Is it, is it in there on a level playing field? So the Australian example is very much about how do we enable the environment to enter into a water marketplace in the same way that any other buyer or seller of water would be entering into that marketplace. So it's much more... Um, like it's very formal in Australia. There are basically auction houses or clearing houses or like sort of stock exchange type things where you can go in and bid for water market water rights. And so the trading process is highly formalised. Um, it's highly abstracted from location as well. So it's very homogenised. So that creates a, a specific way for the environment to enter the market um, in a very what's the word I'm looking for? Like it's 
it's almost blind to who the buyer is. It doesn't really matter. And it's almost blind to where the location of that water is because it's just buying rights in a river system that then can flow or be extracted at, at almost any point downstream of where those rights are purchased. It's very different in the United States. So still a shared resource market, but the way the prior appropriation, appropriation system works and the way that rights are still connected to place really matters. So the eldest rights in the system have the highest priority. So as you were saying, in a dry year, they get everything um, and it's only after their needs have been satisfied that the next people down the stream get theirs. And if you think about it from an environmental flows perspective, what the environment wants is water in the stream, but also water in as much of the stream as it can get. So the rights that are most valuable to the environment are the senior rights at the bottom of a river. So if you're, yeah, if you're an irrigator and you're right down at the bottom and you've got the oldest rights on the system, nobody can take water all the way down that river until you've had a chance to take out everything that you need. So there's some, yeah, obviously really interesting compliance issues around how you navigate that, but that's, yeah, that helps the environment kind of target its transactions. So obviously across the Western US markets are quite different as well. So in different parts, so the, the Colorado Big Thompson markets are much less place-based. Um, there's a bit more homogeneity in there, but by and large, the majority of, of the Western US is operating on a, quite a strong place-based as well as seniority aspect. And that changes the way that the environment then participates in those markets because it's really about targeting specific individuals to say, if we can work with you to get a win-win outcome. And for the most part as well, and this is a big difference between Australia and the US, in the US, environmental water recovery has usually very explicitly um, not universally, but almost always, it's aiming to not buy it up and dry it up. So they want to keep the farmer on that land, they want to make that farm successful, and they want to get water back in the river. So they're targeting individuals, they're targeting specific locations, they're targeting senior water rights, but they're also doing it in a way that says, we need to make this relationship work, we need to give you a reason to want to trade with us on this. There's, the processes are different, right? And there, there's the verbiage is different. And if you're trying to get a senior water right, that is a much more fundamental change to the regime than I'm not even clear on how this happens when the when the environmental water manager obtains junior rights. That's that's not that's really not a fundamental change nearly as much. I have that correct. Yeah, right? yeah. So a lot of a lot of the western states once they started recognising that the environment did actually need water um, and that in-stream use was a beneficial use for water um, and it, it was a defensible use then, it was a way of actually appropriating that water. Um, it was, you know, it was the 1970s at the, the earliest and so most of the water rights in the system had already been allocated. And so what they were doing at that point is saying, well, anything that's left is now belonging to the environment or the, you know, the vast majority of what's left. And so the environment became the junior right holder in that system. So anybody who got rights after that, and, you know, there's a few times when that happens, um, could only receive their rights after the environment had, had, I guess, seen whatever its flows were. But, yeah, as you say, they were the most junior rights. So in dry years, those junior rights aren't really worth anything at all. Uh, they're, 
they're dry water, they're paper water, they're not wet water. It does start to put a limit on it. So in some ways you could see um, issuing the environment with those junior rights as a way of imposing a bit of a cap on how much water can be extracted from the system. But yeah, it doesn't really do anything to protect the system in those dry years. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And I, I know it's describing a problem, but the, the word paper water does a lot of work for me. I, I've talked uh, in, in my field, we talk about paper parks a lot and it's just kind of the same idea, right? It's, it's easy to write something down yeah. and feel like you've changed the world. Yeah. But you might not have. Yeah. And I think paper water in the Western US has another really important element to it as well, because any transfer of rights in the Western US needs to go through a process to determine whether those rights actually exist. So you have to show that you've been extracting the water from the river and that it hasn't actually been then draining back into the river after you put it onto your property. So if you want to, you know, if you've got um, five acre foot license, you have to actually show that not only have you pumped out five acre feet every year or most years, um, but that you haven't actually seen that water return to the river through that drainage process. So you have to show that it's been putting it onto your system and it's been basically evaporating and, you know, turning into crops, not draining back into the system. So there's quite a bit of work that goes behind the scenes every single time someone tries to transfer a water right. And again, the reason for that is because of that place-based sequencing. So if you're, um, yeah, if you're a relatively senior water right holder and you're at the top of the stream, and then you want to trade to someone who's maybe down at the bottom of the stream, how much of your water was actually filtering back into the stream after you've extracted it is really important to make sure that that transfer doesn't have an impact on the, the users in between you. Okay. I mean, is it safe to say that the water markets in the US have much higher transaction costs than, than the Australian market? They do. They do. It's, okay. I mean, it's, yeah, it's one of those things where I don't know, I think partly adjudication assists in that. So adjudicating rights and trying to pin down exactly what people have been using and um, trying to get a handle on where there's been too much paper water issued and actually kind of rein that back into to really what's actually being used. These are processes that can reduce those transaction costs. One of the challenges with the Australian water markets is that by trying to homogenise a lot of that, we really haven't paid enough attention to how water moves through the system and the ways that those trades are changing that. So one of the things that has happened in Australia, for instance, is um, think about the Murray-Darling Basin. The big dams are at the eastern end of the system. A lot of the use is now um, down towards the western end of the system. We've got had a massive boom in pistachio planting and almond planting and, and orchards down there. In the middle is what we call the Barma Choke, and this is an incredible um, array of wetlands. It's a really, really beautiful part of the world. Um, it's Ramsar protected. It's a very important site, but it also means that the water, like the river narrows substantively. So getting water from the east to the west is actually quite challenging when everybody wants their water all at the same time. And so it really, we're still dealing with the consequences of enabling a whole bunch of planting to happen um, and just assuming that the river system would be able to deliver it and now realising actually, yeah, it's causing all kinds of bank erosion when you're trying to run rivers too high and you're, yeah, 
you just can't actually physically deliver the water downstream at all at the same time. Right. I mean, this is making me reflect on some standard arguments about markets that we often hear, right, that you want to, say, minimize transaction costs. And I think that perspective is often incomplete in that it doesn't see the value of the activities that are incurring the costs, yeah. right? And so I feel like that's what we miss when we try to just, this is when you, the more efficient you try to become, the more, the narrower your view is going to be because you're focusing on this one thing. And the more abstract it becomes, right? The more attenuated it is away from what the physical reality actually is. And so right. that, you know, that can be helpful, but it, in, you know, it's, it's kind of theoretical, theoretically helpful. It's not actually reflecting the complexity of what's happening on the ground. And so right. in some ways that, yeah, that the honesty of those transaction costs in the US circumstance is, yeah, is something that Australian water market designers and theorists and practitioners would do well to remember um, because mm. you can't actually avoid them entirely. I remember back in, in 2007 um, at an international conference, and that was one of the first times that the Western US environmental water people came into conversation with some of the Australian environmental water people. And we were talking about exit fees. And so Australia had been trying to think about how do we find a way to make sure that when water is traded, we don't have to worry about exit fees. So separating the ability to trade your water right away from the exit fees that might underpin the infrastructure that you were using. So the Australian solution to that was actually to, um, to unbundle the elements of the water right. And I wanted to ask you about unbundling because I don't understand it yeah, fully yet. Yeah. So how does so, this, yeah. Yeah. So unbundling in Australia was basically a way to say, let's think about your volumetric right to water. And that's the right to the water that sits in storage. And then you've also got a license that you use water on land. So that sets your conditions about how much water you can apply to a certain um, land area, uh, any other things you have to take into account in terms of drainage or salinity or pollution management, that's factored into that separate license. And then you have a delivery share, which you pay for, and that maintains the infrastructure to get water to your property. And it also guarantees you um, a share of that delivery system when when times are, you know, when it's peak delivery, you can maintain a small share of that. So the the way that Australia structured its exit fees was to say exit fees are really, really bad. They'd be a constraint on trade. So what we'll do is enable you to trade your volumetric right to water very, very easily. From um, storage. Yeah, that, so that's your right in storage. Um, and anybody can hold that. You don't have to own land in order to go and buy one of those rights in storage. If you want to use it on land, obviously that's a different scenario and to go and get those licenses and think about what those delivery costs are going to be. But we'll enable you to buy and sell those, those volumetric rights in storage very easily. And you'll keep paying your delivery share. And if you want to stop doing that, if you really just want to stop doing anything with water and you want to get out of the business entirely, then, then that's when the exit fee comes into play and that's a really big lump sum to say this is my contribution basically to the capital upkeep of this system so that my exit is not imposing costs on all of my um, you know, fellow farmers who are all using that same infrastructure system. So the Western US idea around exit fees um, and it was, it was a really interesting kind of beginning to the conversation. We have Australia being like, exit fees are bad, they're a constraint on trade. 
and the Western US guys going, exit fees are great. They are exactly the tool that we need to free up water for the environment because that enables us to put a price on what it costs to recover that water for the environment and how to make it right with all of the other users in that system. And so for them, the exit fees were a pathway to success, not a barrier to it. So it was a, yeah, it was a really, I think we were kind of ending up in the same sort of place about the exit fees playing a similar role, but just the way they were constructed as a barrier or as a pathway was really interesting. Okay. So do I have it right that the unbundling here, that is part of what leads to the high level of abstraction in the water rights markets? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, they've okay. tried to yeah tried to really homogenize it, tried to reduce the different types of water entitlements, and tried to make the process of changing ownership of that volumetric right as easy and as streamlined as possible. Okay. So, Aaron, we can't conclude our conversation about this book without talking about I haven't we haven't used the word yet paradox, and you talk about it a fair amount. This paradox of the environmental water managers and the way in which they're trying to be an agent for the rights of nature. Can you talk to us about what this paradox is and how it unfolds itself in the cases? Yeah, this, again, this paradox was one that surprised me a little bit. I came into this work um, after having worked for the state government in Victoria and creating the Victorian Environmental Water Holder and feeling like it raised a lot of questions for me. What happens to our understanding of the environment when we clothe it with a corporate form, when we send it out into the market as a participant. And so, you know, several years later through the PhD, I feel like I finally got to the hub of that. And that is where it brings together the framework around how the environment is constructed in law. So that socio-ecological concept, the legal object and the legal person. And it says, well, what narratives are actually underpinning them? And the case studies provide really compelling evidence of the way that those narratives actually play out in, in reality. So in 2017, when rivers around the world started being recognised as legal persons and legal rights holders, one, like my question was really, well, what happens next? Um, these are really transformative ideas and everybody's very excited about them. But what does it actually do? And so when you look at the cases of the environmental water managers, we can start to see the way that the legal personhood concept um, changes the narrative around what the environment is and what our relationship to it is, what our obligations to it are. So the paradox that I observe is, and I think you can see this playing out in a number of different ways, particularly where uh, rights of nature have been pursued from a legalistic perspective, where there's a deliberate intent to create those rights in order to get nature's interests into a court um, because it sets up that adversarial arrangement from the get-go. What you can see with this paradox is that um, on the one hand, you've got a formal increase in legal protections. So when the environment is most visible and most comprehensible to the law, when it has the most formal rights, that's legal personhood. Um, it is formally very powerful. But what happens in reality is that people become very unwilling to protect it. And that unwillingness comes from two things. Firstly, they see the environment as having all of these powers. So they're like, well, okay, I don't have to take action on behalf of the environment anymore. It can look after itself. So we abdicate our responsibility. Um, recognizing the environment as a legal entity 
should be a way of reminding us all that we are in a relationship with this environment, that we are interdependent on it, but actually it can enable us to say, well, my work here is done, this was something I didn't really want to do anyway, and now I don't have to feel bad about it, the environment can look after itself. The other thing that happens is that people become afraid, and you see that fear happen almost instantaneously. So the recent example of Lake Erie in the US, and I noticed that there's another attempt to give the Great Lakes legal rights um, starting to come together. I don't know that they've learned the lessons from the previous attempt, but anyway, um, the very first thing that happened as soon as those rights were passed was that Drew's farm immediately filed suit. They could see those rights as a potential weapon pointed at farmers um, who certainly contribute some of the pollution to the Great Lakes. They're probably not the biggest problem. Um, and I genuinely don't know enough about the nitrogen pollution issues for the Great Lakes, but they could see this as a weapon pointed at them. And their first response was to say, well, we want to challenge this immediately and get that off the books. And it's, I think, again, this is a, a challenge for the environmental advocacy movement that keeps targeting these local law reforms is that the easiest challenge to make is that they are inconsistent with a higher level law. Um, so in this case, uh, it turned on, on vagary. So the court held that the, the rights for Lake Erie were actually too vague, but the court did say as well that even if they were um, clearer and they could understand exactly what was involved, they would still fall afoul of this consistency problem. So if you create a local law that is in, inconsistent with a state law or a federal law, it's invalid to the extent of that inconsistency. So the, the reaction from people um, to abdicate their responsibility, to be afraid of the environment, we can see that fear in the cases of the environmental water managers, particularly in Australia, where people became very afraid of these large, powerful, um, big, deep-pocketed, government-funded organisations um, that they could blame for raising the water prices. And so the reaction was to, to take away some of those powers again. And I think this is where the idea of norms becomes really important, norms and changes in narrative. Um, the work of, of Nisi and Rastuccini in showing the way that, say, a fine, for instance, becomes a price and it's very difficult to move people back into a kind of social norm arrangement after you've pushed them into an economic um, kind of governed space, that applies here as well. So when you give the environment formal legal power and people begin to back away, like this is not my job anymore, it's very, very difficult to go back from that. So even if you start stripping the environment of its powers, you've then got a whole lot of work to do to bring people back into that space to say, the environment now can't look after itself again. You have to step back up. Like the, the constant conversation in environmental movements is how do we make people care more? How do we get people to actually change their behaviour and do more to protect the environment? And one of the dangers of creating rights of nature, particularly if they're then immediately destroyed, is that you can undermine all of that good work. And again, the Lake Erie case is such a profound example. The rights of Lake Erie came from a very unifying experience of those blue-green algal blooms. Everybody in Toledo was affected by that. Businesses, homes, schools, nobody could drink the water for days. Um, I think this was back in 2014. And instead of 
being able to move forward together um, and find a new vision for everybody in the community. They were all affected. They all had this extraordinary lesson about how dependent they all are on the health of the lakes. The way that the rights panned out really just entrenched that adversarial interaction and fractured that community. So now you've got to try and put the pieces back together as well as trying to continue to progress the interests of the environment. And so that's the paradox of rights of nature is that it can actually set you well back even as it increases the formal powers and rights of the environment. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of discourses we hear about in social movements that sometimes the more you push against another group, the more they actually respond even more strongly against what you're trying to do. Yeah, and it's a real, I think one of the one of the challenges with this paradox is that it can be interpreted as a kind of, you know, don't do anything that creates a backlash. And I want to be really clear that that's, that's not what I'm arguing with this. It's more about pay attention to the consequences and design your strategy so that you are you are aware of what those consequences are and you've got a plan to deal with them. So backlash always happens when you're changing things and being aware of what that backlash is helps you tackle it from the get-go. Um, and sometimes you can't avoid it, especially when you're talking about shifts in power dynamics and kind of radical transformations of the ways in which people relate to the environment. So again, historically, many people have seen the environment as something that they can use and what the environmental rights movement is saying, well, actually, the environment has a right to exist alongside us, so we're more like equals. That's really profoundly challenging. That will create a backlash, and that's okay, but be aware of it and manage for it. And I think that's the, that's the value that I hope to inject into this conversation is to say there is decades of evidence that we can draw on to understand what these changes are likely to mean and therefore, we can actually put together a strategy for managing them that acknowledges the backlash, that finds a way of dealing with it. And I think the, the way forward in that space is actually to emphasise the relational shift, the transformative change in our relation that comes from understanding the world around us as a living entity. So when we see rivers as living entities, that's a profoundly different way of relating than focusing on legal personhood. There are times when legal personhood is crucial, when you really got to get into court, when, when you know that, that enforcement is going to be the thing that is going to make the biggest difference. Okay, maybe that's worth it and you can have other strategies for dealing with that backlash. But if what you want to do is actually reset the relationship between people in place to remind people about the value of the, the environment around them, the value that they, the rivers that they love, um, that they can be in relation with the environment, that they can be in good relations with the environment. And what, that, what does that even look like? That reset is likely to be much more sustainable. It's likely to be much more profound. And you don't need legal personhood to get that kind of outcome. So it's choosing your tools based on the problem you're actually trying to solve. I mean, this gets back in some ways to the formal versus informal. We can make a lot of formal changes, but that doesn't mean that things are changing in people's hearts and minds. And the kind of worst case scenario is when formal 
more economic oriented thinking and approaches even crowd out social change at the individual and community level. And certainly if we're thinking about market interventions, we shouldn't assume that the marketization of a resource will, right? To me, the standard assumption would be that that, 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 that economic framing is certainly not going to automatically lead to the internalization of, of intrinsic valuing of nature as a new social norm. Right. If anything, I would expect that it's going to leave it in the opposite direction, at least a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the evidence is that it, it does tend to take it in the opposite direction um, and it, it reduces it to a transactional relationship. Right. OK. Um, well, we mentioned in, earlier in the conversation, Aaron, that we would talk about your future work. But before we dive into that. Are there other points in this book, in this work, that you wanted to make sure that we mention before we move on to that next topic? Um, look, I think, yeah, the book for me is, again, it's really about that saying and reminding people that there is an evidence base that they can draw on. And so mm. the, the case studies of those environmental water managers, I think, are most interesting in the context of this rights of nature conversation. So... I was finishing this research in early 2017, just before all of the rivers began to receive their rights. And so it's a really useful foundation for people who are looking at what the next step is. I think there's a lot of advocacy. There's a lot of conversation about how do we get some rights that actually stick? Um, so that's, you know, that's an ongoing discussion in many parts of the world. I think particularly in the US, because there's, there's a constant a constant churn of the creation of these rights in different parts of, of the US. And there's a real role for that kind of environmental advocacy that just persists and persists until you actually get change. But to do that most effectively, you have to pay attention to the evidence of what happens next. And that's that's the contribution that I'm hoping my book makes. Yeah, that's great. I imagine, just to add one more thing, people must ask you, kind of like what is your high level take on on water markets with this experience do you have a kind of standard answer that you give so markets a bit like rights for nature markets as an idea and water markets as an idea particularly can very quickly become um, the end goal rather than the means by which you achieve an end goal so having a functional market takes so much effort. And I think this is the other bit that is missing. So I tend to frame water markets as a form of regulation. They are not an alternative to regulation because they require so much investment from the state in actually setting up the rules that underpin the market, the property rights to water, all of the enforcement arrangements, the trading rules, all of that stuff is a state regulatory investment. And that's, that's the unspoken element of markets. So they're a form of regulation, they're not an alternative to regulation. And so as such, we need to be very clear, what is the problem that those markets are trying to solve? What are we using them to achieve? Because merely having a very functional water market is not actually an end goal worth having. Oh, I kind of just want to end things right there because those were some fantastic points. That was that was great. I like this is when I love this podcast, when I just like I get these nuggets of wisdom. I, I totally agree. There's this kind of such a naive framing in a lot of policy discourses, a lot of the dominant policy discourse that says, well, you can regulate or you can have markets and which is not, it's just, you want to be polite about this, but it's nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. It's complete nonsense. And 
I think one of the, the interesting books that I reviewed recently was Sarah Wheeler's edited collection of kind of global application of her water markets readiness assessment framework. Um, and I have a few challenges with that framework anyway, but one of the things that her book does very clearly, and it's it's I think it's almost a point that they miss in the book, they show why formal markets have lagged so far behind informal markets because of the extraordinary need for huge levels of state investment to get formal markets actually up and running and to keep them running. So they look around at all of the different parts in the world and say, you know, where are we seeing kind of proto markets or um, where are all of these different countries at in terms of our kind of multi-step water market readiness assessment framework? And everybody's right at the beginning, um, almost everybody, like Australia and the US and Chile and a few other places are, have got, you know, highly active formal markets. But um, most people are at the very beginning. And the, the work that Dustin and I did for the World Bank on informal markets really showed the gap between informal and formal. And I think that's, that's the reason, is because the investment by the state is so significant. They are absolutely a form of regulation. Again, a part of me just wants to end the interview right there, but I do want to hear about what you're up to next. So one of the things that I begin to get into a little bit at the end of the book is that, uh, that role of Indigenous laws, the laws of Indigenous peoples in different parts of the world in shaping the rights of nature. So we see that where, where those rights are most sustainable, where they are um, most transformative in their impact on the relation between people and place is in those circumstances where they have been driven by the leadership of Indigenous peoples. So one of the pieces of work that I'm doing now is to work more explicitly with Indigenous peoples, um, particularly in Australia, but also in other parts of the world, to try and create a new model of legal personhood that better reflects models of legal personhood within their laws. So one of the ideas that we've been playing around with is the ancestral person. So it brings together this idea of those legal rights and powers from the Western legal frameworks with the idea of obligation and care and relationality inherent in the ancestral person. So that's definitely one thread. Um, I'm also doing some work with disability scholars to think about legal personhood, again, in its relational context, to try and upend the assumptions that underpin the model of legal personhood in Western legal frameworks, which is very atomized, individualized, and largely the product of centuries of wealthy, white, able-bodied men who have been able to um, ignore all of the, the social web around them that actually makes it possible for them to be individualized thinkers and creators of knowledge. So if we think about what those, you know, the living conditions of what those men would have been, they often had wives, they would have had servants, they had a, an entire society around them in which they pretended to be highly individualized, atomized little creatures. And I think that conceit has actually become embedded within the Western legal framework understanding of the legal person. So we're looking at trying to challenge this from its foundations within Western law as well. So that's, yeah, that's number two. And then number three thread that I'm working on is um, decolonialising our understanding of water law. So in the Australian context, of course, we've never had treaties with Aboriginal people. And so that's the illegitimacy that is at the heart of water law in Australia 
every single statute around Australia, we have the different water law statutes at the state level, they all have a section right up front that says that the right to use and the right to control water vests in the Crown, because um, of course Australia is still um, the Commonwealth. And that assumption that the Crown can do that um, is embedded within the idea that that water belonged to no one at the beginning when the British arrived in Australia. And that's terra nullius. That's the, the idea that was challenged in one of Australia's really important cases, the Marbo case back in 1992. So this is a 30-year anniversary this year of this case. It actually said, no, Aboriginal people's law was here before. They had rights to land and those rights persist. So if they had rights to land, they also have rights to, to water. That section that vests those rights in the Crown is the basis of all water law in Australia. So if you challenge that, then you are challenging the right of the state to make laws with respect to water, to govern water, to um, issue rights to water. So there is a really big challenge for Australia to come to grips with in terms of the aquinellius that is at the heart of water law. Well, that all sounds very interesting and very important. I am working very hard internally to not ask 10 follow-up questions about all of that. I mean, the, the, I mean, the one point, so I won't, I won't entirely help myself. Um, the, this idea again of going back to really legibility, Aaron, and that does relate to this kind of hyper individualistic narrative that we have this, I think about this as I'm, I'm writing my own book, as I'm building on the work of so many other people, as we all do. And this fantasy that, and this, this persists a lot in, in academia, right? The idea that there's this kind of lone genius, of course, and this is, this is reinforced by the awards complex that, of course, gives awards largely to individuals supporting the fantasy that it was their lone genius that managed to rocket them up without needing the support of individuals that hold much, positions of much less prestige and whose work is largely invisible without whom the, the, the legible, visible accomplishments would not be possible. Um, you know, that, that reflects this tension of the visible and the legible again, right? Because it's, it's the accomplishments of a very few that are made legible and visible We've talked about legibility to the law. Well, there's legibility to awards givers to kind of yeah. continue that example, right? Like that's, it's the same. I think it's helpful to highlight that the same intellectual apparatus can helpfully problematize those dynamics the way it did for you in, in the rights to, to water case or the rights to rivers, right, rights of rivers case. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I really enjoy working into that um, relational personhood concept is that it's legal, but it actually affects the way that our entire society is constructed, um, which is around the concept of the individual and the individual as the, yeah, the only mechanism for protecting your own rights and, and powers is for you to basically step forth and do that in specific ways. And so the system has been designed by people for whom that was possible to the ignorance of the people Oh, you know, in the ignorance of the people for whom that was not possible. So it's a, yeah, it's a very particular narrative that underpins a lot of Western societies, particularly Anglo-Western societies, where the individual is still the, the kind of 
the paramount unit. Um, whereas I think we're starting to see much stronger ideas of relational autonomy. So the idea that you can best express your autonomy through relationships. And maybe that's the only way to express your autonomy is through relationships. Yeah, you're reminding me, and now we're dangerously close to starting another conversation, but you're reminding me of this work by these two psychologists, Ryan and DC, on self-determination. And they argue that humans have these basic needs, one of them being autonomy. And they're very careful in saying autonomy is not just about negative liberty. It's not about the absence of external impositions, but autonomy is fundamentally about, about the relationship between your actions and your own sense of self and your values. Yeah. And though having that autonomy requires relationships with other people. Yeah. It's not, it's not this atomistic, you used a great word for it and I laughed inside, but now I don't remember what you said, but this kind of the, the overly atomistic approach to individuality, a sense of liberty and autonomy. Maybe I'll just end with that kind of mouthful of keywords. Um, well, Aaron, this has been really terrific. And again, I, I, I the, your future work sounds really, really at least as interesting as, as what you've been doing before. And I'm excited to, you know, see what, what I can read of yours next. Are there any final threads that we started that we want to make sure that we tie up at least a little bit things you want to mention before we sign off? I think, yeah, the common thread in my work is the power of narrative, the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we embody in law, the stories that are in institutions reflect. So being aware of those stories and the power of those stories and the way that then they are reflected back to us and continue that reflexive relationship between the stories we begin with, the legal systems they create, and then the stories that they reflect back to us. That is incredibly important because that's the way, that's the way we transform our world is to start changing those stories. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.